Hello, and welcome to, let's see if Rachel's got it, on the first take, she forgot the name Live of the show. Live from Bar Save. What? You got it. I got it right. It took you two tries, but you wow. got it. <laughs> All right. So welcome back. Thank you. You were gone for a little bit. I was. Um, we had, you know, we, we were okay. We just had some little germ pods running around downstairs and... We're just trying to keep it contained because, you know, we don't want everybody to be sick all the time. So No, we yeah. basically have decided everyone but me can be sick all the time and I'm special. So Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just their age. You know, at school and, you know, scouts, they just get germs from every possible imaginable little And unimaginable. Person. Yeah. Yeah. So. Okay, so you have a disclaimer for us. I do, if I can remember it. <laughs> Oh, you're looking at the notes. Don't act like you have Earthon is a registered trademark of FASA Corporation. Any use of FASA Corporation's trademarks or copyrighted material is not intended as a challenge to those trademarks or copyrights. This is a fan work, and unless explicitly noted, material it contains is not approved or endorsed by FASA Corporation. Very good. Okay, so we are now in the home stretch of Bar Length. We are on episode six. We will be talking about... The northern section of the city. It's called the vaults, and the catacombs below are called, Rachel? The catacombs. The what catacombs? The northern? The northern catacombs. catacombs. Very good. The questions get harder as we go. Okay. Okay, so the vaults, like we said, they're located in the northern quadrant. Par length, if you look at the map, is separated into north, south, east, west, and is separated by these major roads called the laneways that run on the diagonals. So it's like a big X, and then you have four quadrants, and each of those quadrants has an above-ground and below-ground section. So today we're talking about the northern part. This was originally called the Administrative Quarter, and uh, Rachel, tell us about the Administrative Quarter. Well, the Administrative Quarter originally was intended to have only official Theron government buildings. Um, however, in the style of Parlength, um, Thera making this a big ego trip, they built the section and the buildings much larger than they actually needed. Um, the pyramids um, or ornate buildings with columns and statues, they were just much more fancy and much more spacious than they needed to be, just contributing to their you know, ego that they're the best and everybody else stinks. And these statues, you would have seen some of the passions uh, but there also would be other ones. That, these primarily in this area would have been prominent Therans. So it would have been showing government officials or political figures that uh, that would have been well-known in Thera. Now, this, this also we mentioned when we talked about Haven, that this style from the vaults with the pyramids and everything, this was a style that Torgax group copied when they built their buildings, Torgax Supplies and Goods, the Restless Troll, all of those buildings that were built at the founding of Haven would look the uh, similar style because they copied this style. So if your characters have been around Haven for a little bit and just get to the northern northern part of the ruins, this should look familiar to them, although not in new shiny condition. It's going to be ruined, like ruins tend to be. The public areas have big, wide walkways paved with clay stones and tiles in colorful geometric patterns. They have huge gardens with statues and fountains, but those fountains are now dry or full of muck and weeds. 
No, like all other areas of Parlanth, there was this original plan where everything was neat and orderly. They had different functions for different sections of the city. And then that all changed once once people started living there. And this is an example of that. So over time, the wealthy Therans, they weren't used to living next to people that they thought uh, were inferior to them. They were used to living on their own and having a wealthy section where they didn't have the middle class and the, the poor around them. And that happened here. So what happened was they moved out of the residential quarter and they moved into what is now the vaults. So they started building their homes next to these official buildings. And this was in violation of, uh, of the design of the city, but it was pretty easy to bribe officials. And the book even says that some of this was done on purpose just to spite the architect because nobody liked him. So what happened was at first, this was kind of an under the radar type of thing. So these homes are small to not draw attention to the fact that they were doing something they shouldn't do. And then as it became more of a common practice, people weren't as reserved about it. They started building bigger and bigger palaces until it got to the point where these homes were actually as large or larger than some of the official government buildings. Uh, they were still built in a similar style. So you'll see pyramids and these big grand buildings. But when you go into some ruins, you won't necessarily know, is this an official government building or was this a home that was built in the style. You may not know that unless you get in there and it's relatively intact and then you could look around and, and kind of figure out what it would have been originally. Now, these buildings will be in varying degrees of, of damage and quality. Some of them have been completely reduced to rubble. Some of them are fairly intact. Some of them have been, uh, have been overhauled in the meantime, and some current residents of the vaults may have converted the structures to be something else. So it's really flexible for the GM. Whatever you need it to be, uh, you, can, you can do that. It could be just rubble they're sifting through anywhere up to a mostly intact building. Now, probably the most famous resident of the vaults is Charcoalgren and the Unforgivables. About the time that Torgak and his followers were getting settled in Haven, the dragon Charcoalgren made the vaults her home, and the Unforgivables are her followers. She lives in the Grand Promenade, which is a large courtyard covered by a stone awning that's supported by pillars. The Therans used to use that place to conduct public business. Charcoalgren has had large curtains installed around the edges of the courtyard, Visitors are almost never allowed behind the curtains. So the book describes that even uh, even very seasoned adventurers, when they hear the sound of her claws scraping on the stone, and if she shifts positions, the, the wind will move around. You'll see the curtains flapping, that this can unnerve even very, very experienced adventurers. That's that's a nice detail to work in if you're the GM. I remember describing that. Yeah, it was scary. <laughs> I was scared. Uh, Charcoal Grin's group of followers is called the Unforgivables. Uh, the members of the Unforgivables can be any name-giver races, but mostly are orcs, trolls, dwarves, or humans. They tend to be misfits or outcasts from the rest of society. There are a few adepts in their ranks, but these would mostly not be adepts. They would typically, they may have a little bit of fighting experience. They could be kind of from all walks of life. 
as long as they're out they should have some kind of a reason in their backstory why they're outcasts or otherwise don't fit in in society um, so not they don't tend to be highly trained but they do have some some people that can fight and and hold their own um, they wear fire uh, fired clay badges to identify themselves as members so that's something that uh, if that's something that players can do if they want to try to infiltrate this area they may or may not notice if they steal some badges or somehow fake the badges uh, depending on the particular guards they come up against that may or may not work and the book's got rules for that i believe it's a it's a perception role i believe it's uh it's only like a six or an eight or something so it's not tr- uh, particularly difficult but if you tried to fake your way in that way and got caught, it could lead to some bad consequences. Some of the main roles that the Unforgivables play is a, a guard. They guard the vaults from intruders. Uh, they often attack on site if they think they can easily win the fight. And they're not afraid to call for help. Another group of Unforgivables will show up every 1d8 rounds. They also bring back treasures and other valuables as they find for Charcoal Grin. So as they're out patrolling the area, one of the things they're supposed to do is be on the lookout. Uh, They will also confiscate money from anyone they find in this area. They'll probably let you hang on to a few coppers, but if if you have any real amount of money, they're going to take it. And it's sort of like just payment for being in the area. They'll take your money and tell you to get out. That's if they're... Uh, that's if they're in a good mood. Otherwise, they'll just try to kill you. Now, the vaults never had a lot of treasure to begin with. Uh, anything that they had would have probably been destroyed or carried off years ago. Uh, but Charcoal Grin doesn't allow the Unforgivables to keep much of anything from themselves. They may keep a little bit of scraps here and there, but they don't really have a lot to stand. To, you know, they don't stand to gain a lot by finding treasure and bringing it back. So the result of that is they don't look very hard. So this is not a very rich area for loot, but what there is tends to go untouched. They just kind of leave it there. Um, so you could pick up some, you know, if you look around carefully, you may, you're not going to find probably a major haul of treasure, but you probably could find something worth bringing back in this area. Well, that makes me think Charcoal Grin's got to be sitting on a lot of loot. Uh, we will get to that. Oh, okay. <laughs> Unless you're looking forward in the notes. I'm or... not, actually. <laughs> well, she's a dragon, right. you know. So dragons, no self-respecting dragon would just not have piles of treasure, right? So no, I, I wasn't talking about her palace. I was talking about just the, the vaults in general. Uh, one other thing to keep in mind, if, if the GM running this, you want to sort of randomize these patrols like it shouldn't always be that all the time they have patrols all over them so that's why rolling 1d8 rounds to see how long it takes for the reinforcements to show up it's up to you if it's important for the plot point you can go ahead and decide exactly where they are and how many there are or if you want to make it a little more randomized and sometimes they can get away with it also the patrols tend to focus around the immediate area near charcoal palace they will expand out anywhere in the entire area of the vaults, but they will focus most of their efforts around there. So if you're farther out on the outskirts of the vaults, you're going to tend to run into fewer of these. If you're right next to the palace, you're guaranteed to run into some patrols. 
And that brings us to the next thing that the Unforgivables do uh, for Charcoal Grin. They guard her. Because if there's one thing dragons need, it's little lowly helpers guarding, right? Because she can't take care of herself, obviously. She's a woman. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you said it. I didn't. So, no, the, the book is very clear. Clearly, she could defend herself. If anyone got to be a trouble, she's more than equipped to take care of herself. But... The, the Unforgivables, they consider it to be a great honor to kill an intruder or uh, a guest who gets out of line. They would they just love to volunteer to take care of that so that, uh, so that the dragon they're serving doesn't have to annoy herself with uh, dispatching of them. So she's not really in any real danger, but they, they take it as like a point of pride to guard her. They basically guard her from having to do anything. Well, she does a lot. I mean, she's a dragon. They meddle in a lot of, you know, who knows what dragons are up to. They they are pulling strings behind the scenes, you know, and have been doing that since before the name giver races came about. So I'm sure she's up to something, but she doesn't do the low level like that guy with a sword over there is out of line. I'd better kill him. Um, she very rarely will get directly involved in those. Sometimes the Unforgivables build crude traps. They can cause damage, but they're really built to make noise to alert other Unforgivables in the area. Um, they do have some adepts that can create basic magical traps. Right. These wouldn't, you'd want to make these a lower intensity than, uh, you'd want to make it like a lower difficulty number and lower damage step than, say, a trap set by a Theron that was in the Western Catacombs that originally guarded something. You know, it wouldn't be that high level, but uh, they have a few adepts that can do these basic magical traps. The Unforgivables are very loyal to Charcoal Grin, and that's mainly because she provides a safe place to live, food, uh, acceptance, a community, um, so they they really don't have any reason they have they have want for nothing so they are very loyal to her right now they wouldn't live in any kind of uh, you know any kind of lavish lifestyle or anything it would be pretty basic but these are people that would pretty much be destitute without her so they're very very loyal and they will definitely definitely not think of betraying her uh, now as far as her personality if you end up having charcoal grin in a game it's important to know ahead of time what personality traits you want to bring out because this is a really cool moment in a campaign you really want to make the most of it she tends to be very talkative even to the point of annoying people she has this vast knowledge of obscure subjects and she'll just go on stop smirking at me i know i know what you're thinking what what i know you you i don't know how you even saw that you were looking at the monitor okay so you you're denying it happened but you don't know how i saw it okay i i know you i don't have to see it i know you (laughs) so obscure knowledge she would do a podcast if 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 they had podcasting, she would do a podcast, and we wouldn't have to. Hmm. So she loves showing off her obscure knowledge and loves it when people agree with her. She has some of the unforgivables are there for the purpose of just agreeing with her. Um, so that is one thing you can work in. Like the, It shouldn't be just talking about whatever they're there to talk about. She should be asking them their thoughts on particular creatures or on obscure history or whatever. And the characters, the player characters, have to be very, very careful to, to play along. 
because she does not like being insulted. She does not. If you yawn because you're bored, she'll incinerate you. So this is very high stakes kind of conversation. She's, she sounds much like um, royalty. She considers herself to be royalty. Oh, she is royalty. All I right. think uh, she's higher than royalty. She's a great dragon. <laughs> so she's very shrewd and intelligent. This I love this quote in the, the book. It says, her political skills reach such extraordinary heights that if she were not a dragon, she might be a general or a queen. See? Royalty. But I, I think that would be a step down, though. Right. I, I think it, it's not like her dragonness is holding her back. I think it's that that would be her fallback job. Would that be a proper way to... Her dragonness? Her dragonness. Your dragonness. I be, that just now became Earth on Canon. Yes. Right. It's not in the book, but now I'm going to write it in. I'm okay. going to write it in the bottom, her dragonness. So if you're <laughs> in like a that. situation with her, that's how you should... That's her title that you should, you know, her majesty, well, her dragonness. Uh, yeah, but but the GM will roll dice and see whether that, whether that uh, deserves an incineration. I don't know. I wouldn't try it. <laughs> now, she had, one thing you would think that she would be kind of aloof from her followers and not really care so much about the details, but she's actually deeply involved on a personal level. She knows every one of them by name. She knows their history. She knows what motivates them and how they think. Um, as far as her motives in that, she, may, she probably does have, it's up to the GM, she probably has some level of genuine care for them but at the same time she wants to know them so well that if someone's planning a revolt or is unhappy she wants to know uh, the book says sometimes she knows that before they do which makes you wonder if she gets it wrong like just just like you when i knew what you were thinking about me a little while ago well you would think that that would also contribute to her subjects feeling of belonging because she's taken that interest in them right and it says that she, there's another couple more quotes here. She rewards loyalty generously and punishes the disloyal swiftly, publicly, and spectacularly. So another way the GM wants to create some, uh, to show them the stakes, maybe if, if the player characters are have a meeting with her, just have one of these spectacular public executions so that they know not to mess around. Uh, And it says that she keeps the nod. I don't normally quote this much, but this is a very quotable section. She keeps the nod and shattered bones of those who tried to undermine her authority in a special gallery in the palace. So that would be a sight to see. Does she offer tours? I'm sure. I'm sure they do. Oh, I think the Unforgivables do that. Okay. If she doesn't fight for herself, I doubt that she runs the tours herself. Well, there are some questions that people have about Charcoal Grin, and, and there's there's rumors that go around Haven about Charcoal Grin. Like, what are her motives? What do they think her motives are? Right, and the campaign set, and you know, I didn't mention it at the top of the episode. This is from the Parlanth uh, the Parlanth campaign set. It's a first edition product. You can get it at FastaGames.com. And it's uh, it's in it's out of print, but they have the PDFs. So when we say the book, we're talking about the book that came out of that. Um, there also are some handouts in there that have quite a bit of information. So that's that's the set we're talking about. But the campaign set has some suggestions about her motives and about what uh, there could be more going on than what the players will initially see. 
Um, now the GM, like in everything, has a lot of flexibility, but the book will give you a couple of little bullet points of it could be this, option A, option B, or make up your own. One of the ways that I like to work those in is in the form of rumors floating around Haven. So it just you can imagine an entire town that's made up of adventurers. There's going to be a lot of talking back and forth, and it's not guaranteed that any of it's accurate. You never know for sure, but this is a good way for the GM to kind of get some of this stuff out there. And one person could say, oh, no, Charcoal Grin, uh, she's like this. And someone else could say, no, no, that's not really what's going on. She's like this. So the GM can kind of play around with some of those options, even if you haven't made up your mind about which way you're going to go. She does have huge amounts of treasure in her basement. She does. Heavily guarded. So don't even think about it. You can think about it, but she'll know you're thinking she'll know, about yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. And then that'll be one of those spectacular, yes. you know, displays. What a way for a character to go out, though. That wouldn't be so bad. That's better than, like, you know, you, you failed a dexterity roll and fell off the cliff. I agree. That This would be much Someone's better. Someone's writing a song about you if you are spectacularly <laughs> executed by a dragon. If you want to go see Charcoalgren, you might be in luck because sometimes she does accept audiences if she thinks you have something interesting to talk about. And you will have to convince the unforgivables of this. So you could kind of walk up, you know, walk into the northern, uh, not the northern catacombs, the vaults, and you will run into a patrol. But you are taking a risk because, first of all, you not only just have to convince them that you have a reason that, that she would be pleased to talk to you. You also have to convince them not to just kill you on sight. So it's sort of this delicate thing where you need to, first of all, look tough enough that they can't, they don't think they can just kill you, that they'll talk to you instead and see what's going on. And then you have to convince them. So you are taking a pretty major risk, but it is possible to get an audience with Charcoal Grin. Now, as I mentioned before, a good way for the GM to introduce Charcoal Grin and the whole idea of going to the vaults, uh, the good way to introduce that is to work it into the conversations that the players are having around Haven. So it's not a bad idea to have a little cheat sheet of what are all the cool things about Parlength that someday you want to get in your game and just have that handy. And then when they're in a random conversation with some NPC or a GM character that you could just throw in, hey, did you hear about Charcoal Grin? Did you hear that she just executed one of her followers? I, you know, this this uh, advent these adventurers just came back and had this story, and I, I heard it, and I'm passing it on. So having those kinds of hints dropped early and often will really give you a way to work this in. You also want to give some thought uh, ahead of time about what function you want her to serve in the campaign. So uh, do you want her to maybe pass on a piece of ancient knowledge? This could be a key knowledge for an item. Maybe, maybe she has some knowledge about where that item came from, and that's a way that the characters could get in touch with her to, to learn about that magic item. Uh, maybe she'll send the players on a quest to some other location. So you've been dying to uh, you know, work in, say you want to play the... I don't know, like Twilight Peaks or something that doesn't really have anything to do with Parlength. She could be someone that that gives them a quest to go off somewhere and bring back an artifact or bring back some information. 
and report back. That can be a way to kind of uh, have it be a jumping off point for other things you want to do. Or maybe on the flip side, maybe the the players want to meet her and they have some valuable news or they have to go out and uh, get some particular information. So say the, the characters need to go do something or learn something worthy of getting her attention. So you can kind of work it that way. Do whatever adventure you want. And then the payoff is that they get to meet Charcoal Grin. And then from there, you could take it in whatever direction you want. You also want to think about her motivations and make sure that it fits the game. So is she does she have some sinister motive that no one's aware of? Or is she what she claims to be? Uh, think about all those things ahead of time so that you know why you're bringing her into the game and what function you want her to serve. The campaign set has a lot of specific adventure frameworks and ideas, so you can look at those and get an idea of where to start, or you can just come up with your own. But she's any, any way you use her in the campaign, she's definitely an interesting character. In any case, you want to make a meeting with Char Colgren feel very high stakes. And and there was a specific way that uh, Chad did this recently. Right. This wasn't specifically mentioned in the book, and I don't do this as a general rule. Uh, different GMs have different styles, but I usually allow any amount of out-of-character talking back and forth. So the, if the players want to talk out-of-character and strategize, I think we should go here and do this. But you warned us ahead of time. You're like, when you go meet this dragon, everything you say is as if you're saying it to her and, and where she could hear you. Right. This was a way that I added some tension. I said, while you're in front of the dragon, you are not allowed to talk out-of-character and you're not allowed to talk secretly. So anything you say, she hears, and there's no take back. Wait, I don't really want to have said that. So uh, everything that they say, I play. That's the way we played ours. Mm-hmm. There's not a rule in the book, but I thought that added a lot of tension, especially because our uh, at the time he was nine. Our son was playing, and she was like, "Don't get smart with the dragon." Well, because most of the time when he meets somebody, he's like, "I'm going to attack them." He does a lot of random attacking to show his boss. <laughs> he really does, yeah. That goes over better in Earthdawn, though. He was He's playing this big troll, and he's gotten away with a couple of bar fights. He's done pretty well. And then we played Deadlands, and he picked a bar fight, and the, the, the bartender had a shotgun under the bar. Mm-hmm. Two games in a row, he was just randomly b- blown away in a bar fight that had nothing to do with anything. And in 1879, it didn't pan out too well either. <laughs> I'm trying to remember what what did he do in 1879? He started another fight. I don't remember it. What did? Yeah, he? it was pretty bad. Okay, so same. Yeah, same, same basic idea. thing. <laughs> yeah. All right, so that is that's the vaults. That's the above ground section. Now, directly below this are the northern catacombs. This was originally named the treasury. Before the scourge, this was the area that the Therans used to hold large sums of money, magical items, and other treasure. Later, the slave trade in Parlinth grew and grew more than they expected it to. They kind of found out that the real wealth of Parlinth, where they could really make money, it wasn't in gold, it was in the slave trade. Now, this was leading up to the scourge, and these slaves, in a lot of cases, were being used to build build structures and build defenses for the coming scourge. Uh, we've talked about in some of our previous episodes, especially in our crash course, our Thun crash course, Slavery in Earthon is a very complicated thing. Barsave, the uh, the province where the bulk of your game is gonna 
is going to take place. Most individuals in bar safe completely abhor slavery. They don't support it at all. But the Theron Empire, the oppressors of bar save, they allow slavery and their culture in many ways is built on slavery. So there was already this tension where Parlength was supposed to get people on good terms with Thera, but if they're opposed to slavery and you have all these slaves everywhere, big slave pens outside, it really wouldn't uh, wouldn't go over well. So when they designed Parlength, they put these underground, and as it grew, they got uncomfortable with having that having the slaves right next to the royal treasury for security reasons they thought if there was a massive slave uprising they could just walk next door and loot the treasury um, so they ended up relocating the treasury to what is now the southern catacombs we're not going to go into a lot of detail about that history here because we already talked about that in episode 25 two episodes ago when we talked about the southern catacombs there's a lot of crossover so you can refer back to that uh, refer back to that episode the current condition of the catacombs is absolutely the worst <laughs> physical conditions in all of parlength and possibly in bar safe this possibly, would top the yeah. list of at least close to the top because during the scourge when parlength was gone from the world the horrors uh, diverted a river and then when parlength returned it just flooded into the ruins and some of the areas are completely flooded and there's a couple of feet of mud and muck and uh, quicksand all over the place. And there's some stats in the rule book on, uh, or in the, uh, the campaign set book about quicksand. Uh, but you can use that. Uh, you can definitely use that. It works kind of like a trap, basically the same type of way the rules are in there. Uh, but in addition to the quicksand, you've got the risk of any various kinds of creatures or horrors that could live underneath the muck, not to mention diseases, uh, any any kind of filth or nastiness of any kind could be here. This is the absolute worst part of the city. You want to take your hip waders with you. The magical hip waders of uh, Karafad. There you go. The, those stats are not in the book. I'm just thinking back to our eldritch game when you had to dive in the muck <laughs> well i didn't have to i opted to dive right. in the muck uh a decision i regret actually it didn't go well can't imagine why <laughs> so the original treasury rooms the rooms are still there but they're sinking into the mud and the traps this area would have been obviously heavily trapped with physical and magical traps those were mostly disarmed and removed but it's possible that when they moved out, the Therans could have missed some of the traps or the traps, some of them could have been reset by the scurriers that we mentioned when we talked about the laneways. These are small, minor horrors that, uh, that go around setting and resetting traps. Now, originally, this area would have been pretty ornate. Uh, there would have been uh, elaborate paintings, mosaics things like that, uh, fancy floor coverings, but this is rapidly deteriorating. Uh, first of all, a lot, a lot of that probably would have been moved out when they relocated the treasury, but what's still there is going to be in pretty poor condition. Now, that's the treasury rooms, and then you also have the slave pens and the guard quarters uh, where the guards would have stayed, whose job it was to oversee the slaves. So these were crudely and hastily built. So you could pretty easily tell when you're walking around if you were in the original treasury or if you were in the slave quarters. These are mostly iron pens with varying degrees of rust. Some of them would be absolutely just 
falling down. Some of them are relatively intact. Uh, a lot of them would be unlocked, uh, but some would still be locked. So you can, again, the GM can just decide the particulars of the area that you're in. But this, uh, you know, could be any range of condition that you need for that. These would mostly be empty, but they tend to be drier and warmer than the rest of the northern catacombs. Uh, some people say that the early adventurers in Parlings hid their loot in the catacombs. Some of it's still there beneath all that yucky muck. It's like the fourth time we've said muck so far. Others say there is absolutely nothing of value, but your GM can pick which uh, which one he wants to do or she. And if there if there is anything there under the mud, it would obviously be slow going trying to find it. So if you have a game where your where your players are really really into digging through mud for hours and hours and hours, this is the area to play. But then you have to worry about can you actually keep it once you get out and the uh, if the unforgivables catch you. Uh, that's true, but you also have. You have other inhabitants of the northern catacombs, the un- unforgivables, as uh, as pitiful as they are, the way they <laughs> sound. These these folks are way worse. They're called the foul folk. Ew. So they wish they could be unforgivables, but they're not quite on that social level. <laughs> so Parlanth and uh, specifically northern catacombs. It seems to have some kind of a mystical beacon that attracts deranged people. Now, I'm not talking about deranged adventurers who are crazy about finding treasure. It attracts a lot of them. I'm talking about actually mentally deranged individuals. Some of these are almost so far gone that they're basically animal-like in their instincts. They just, for whatever reason, they instinctively head for Parlanth and then head for the ruins. And they tend to make their way toward the northern catacombs. There's something drawing them. And they are known as the foul folk. The unforgivables will guard all of the entrances to the northern catacombs, but they will allow the these deranged individuals that show up, they will allow them in, but they don't allow them back out. So once they go back in, they now live in the catacombs, and that's, that's their life. Uh, the unforgivables will confiscate all their possessions, and they consider them to be the lowest of the low, they will often abuse, uh, abuse or kill the foul folk just for fun, just because they can. If not, the very best they can hope for is have all of their possessions taken and then to be ushered down into the catacombs below. So if the player characters have a reason to go into this area, it's pretty easy to get into the catacombs. They can just fake like they're crazy, and the, uh, the unforgivables will typically let them through. But getting back out is a different story. They may have to fight their way out or or find some other entrance that was previously unknown or something like that. But uh, getting in is definitely easier than getting back out. So you want to live in the northern catacombs. Here's your menu. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to spend most of the time finding bugs to eat. You hope. You hope. And there is a competition the stronger of the foul folk will fight the weaker to compete for the bugs. That's right. That's if you're, you're like upper echelon foul folk, then you're able to beat up your, your neighbor and take his bugs. If he has the particularly delicious ones. 
I'm just how do thinking you know, the Lion King. How do you the, know? The little, oh, I like the little cream filled kind. Yeah, but like, how do you know what bugs are like better? I don't. I think trial and error. That's really sad. Um, well, the foul folk are often suffering from all sorts of diseases and may also be under the influence of horrors that live in the area. The other thing, you'll see them suffering from delusions. So it's pretty uncommon if you're walking around the area to meet the king of the foul folk because they all kind of think that. Or maybe I'm I'm the ruler of this little area over here. And if if the players sort of take that at face value they might think well this you know this guy can really help us out but there basically is no social structure of any kind this is not an organized society like charcoal grin has above ground it's just sheer chaos it sounds like an asylum where all the doctors have left i think that's probably pretty accurate uh now they uh these will mostly fight pretty poorly there are there are no adepts among them uh, or possibly you might have some former adepts that have gone crazy, but basically nobody is going to be practicing any kind of real talents or magic or mm-hmm. really any even basic skill. They basically can't fight. They have absolutely no armor, um, but they they may attack with some improvised weapons. It would be equivalent to like a dagger, maybe a chunk of a bone or some or a. You know, there may be some old weapons around, but they are not going to put on any kind of an organized formal attack. But it can be dangerous if if they attack in groups and in waves um, because they're they have no sense of self-preservation. So they're just out to to get you. Right. You could end up in a situation where just dozens, just wave after wave of them are attacking you all at once. So characters could pretty easily get overwhelmed. And especially with the flooded, you know, the flooded, the mud in the the flooded corridors, you could get knocked down and be face down in the water. So this can still be a pretty dangerous situation, although any individual one of the foul folk wouldn't put up much resistance. A couple of GM tips if you're thinking about using the catacombs. Adventuring here should be a completely miserable experience in game terms, but obviously you don't want to make a game where your players themselves are actually miserable. So you may have to work a little hard to think about the, you know, even a reason for going there. This is really just a terrible place to go looking for treasure. So there should be some other way of getting them in. There's very, very little chance of finding anything of value. Uh, you can come up with other sorts of tasks and other kind of benefits. So, for example, is there maybe some something that someone in par length has like a mission of I need this particular item or there's a person there that I need to get in touch with that see if we can still save them, something like that. And there's some other some other payoff when they get back to Haven having completed what they're doing. Um, it, or is there maybe some way that the players could bring some relief to the foul folk? Or are they too far gone? Could you try to help them, but it's not possible? The book has some suggestions for possible encounters. Um, you can go through those. We've mentioned before that once we wrap up this series, we're going to do a GM special because I am always tiptoeing around these spoilers, and I don't mean to annoy anyone by constantly saying, read the book. But I don't want to throw out a lot of these details of here's a particular game you could play because now you can't really play it. So we will be doing an episode coming up where I give some details. Uh, but one of these, I really, I, I got to say this one though. 
one of the suggestions of using the northern catacombs is that we talked about last time or the time before. I think it was last, maybe two episodes ago. We talked about Pagmore Guiltthroat. He's a troll who runs these gambling games uh, based on the Falsman Wars. Well, according to this adventure framework, Pagmore also has Haven's annual frog jumping competition. And rumor has it, again, rumors being what they are, is it true or not, no one knows, but the rumor is that the northern catacombs have extremely large frogs that are very athletic, and if you get one of these frogs and manage to keep competitors from killing it, and you you obviously would have to train the frog, which would be a fun game, uh, if, you, if you get one of these frogs that you could win, win the frog jumping competition... So if you're looking for a lighthearted kind of game, that would be a really interesting mix because you would have these absolutely atrocious conditions, but then you have a frog jumping contest. So it would be like really deep and dark, and then it would be lighthearted frog jumping contest festival. We haven't played that one yet, but I think it's going to happen. As long as the frog doesn't jump on me, I think I'm okay. <laughs> you going to explain that? Well, have, have we talked about the frog attack on the I, podcast? I don't, I don't know that we have. We went camping, and um, yeah, I scared my children because a frog jumped on. And your husband. I scared everyone. And several families camping near us. I'm sure. And probably the ranger station. <laughs> a frog jumped on Andy's arm, and it was a huge frog. And I have a thing where I just don't like. I love cartoon frogs. I don't like real ones because they're slimy. It was not a huge frog. It was a regular-sized frog. He was huge. But he sort of did this thing. He looked at it and went, ugh, like, oh, this is gross. And then I looked. I'm like, what's wrong? And I look over. I'm like, oh, good. It's just a frog. Rachel looks over and goes, oh, no, a frog. And she starts screaming. Andy <laughs> thinks if she's screaming, obviously he should be screaming. Everyone's screaming. This well, was after This was after quiet hours also. Right. It was. So It, it was probably, totally dark out. We just had a, like a little uh, camp flashlight to, to because it was raining. We were going to cook, but it had been raining. So we were just, finally the rain stopped. So we got out to the picnic table and decided to eat. This was after a full day of basically like Griswold style camping. It, it was it, it was, was pretty bad. It was very bad, and we're like eating bologna sandwiches in the rain. And and you know what? I, and I want to just say a word about the screaming. Okay, it wasn't like a scream. Like you know, it was more of a yell. Okay, I just want to go on record. I did not bring up the frog attack. I wasn't even thinking about it. You, you. Yeah, but I'm just open. over here wincing the whole time you're talking about the frog jumping contest. I'm okay, just. Okay, we're like, doing this game then. Yeah, I'm just slimy. No, sorry, no. <laughs> we're gonna have to play this one. But I love cartoon frogs. They're really, really cute. Like the little frog from the Rainforest Cafe. He's like adorable, but just don't jump on me, <laughs> and we'll get along just fine. All right. Well. I think that does it for. I, I, we're not going to top the the frog attack conversation, no, so no, I think it's time to take a bow and go off the stage. Until next time. Thanks for joining us for the latest edition of Live from Bar Save. You can reach out to us on Twitter. Chad is at Chad Lair, C H A D L A R E. Also, same name on Reddit. And I'm at Lava Monkey Games. So thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. See you next time.